Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the second Sunday in Lent, March 8th, 2020. In this episode, we discuss the Transfiguration. On the mountain of Transfiguration, Jesus shows forth his divinity for Peter, James, and John to see. Theologians have often associated the Transfiguration with Jesus' passion. We'll look at how the two episodes are related and also explore the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, which gives meaning to St. Peter's often misunderstood exclamation and links the passion to the raising up of a new temple, which is Jesus's body. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sunday Dive. Today, we're talking about uh, the gospel for the second Sunday of Lent. It is from Matthew uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. It's the story of the transfiguration, which has a lot of depth to it. I feel like the transfiguration is like an onion. Like you can, there's there's like a layer, and then which is awesome. And then you peel that layer off, and there's another layer, which is even more awesome. And then you peel that layer off, and there's another layer, which is even more awesome. So we're going to spend our time together today uh, peeling back the layers of the transfiguration, not the layers, the layers. Quick note for you, I have started uh, by popular demand um, writing show notes for the episode. So um, these will not show up in your podcast app, unfortunately. However, if you go to the podcast website, sundaydive.com, um, and you click on the episode, you'll get the episode summary like you get on your podcast app, but you'll also get a section underneath that called show notes. So I share with you there um, the books and resources that I'm using to prepare the episode as well as um, basically some like footnotes. So uh, uh, Bible references that I use in case you want to go back. I know a lot of people listen to podcasts while they're driving and I wouldn't necessarily recommend taking notes while you're doing that. So I compile a lot of my references, primarily uh, scripture citations in the show notes, um, and also some extra biblical resources that I might use. So, you know, if I'm quoting the Mishnah or Josephus or something like that, I try to put that down for you as well. So if you're interested in the show notes and continued study, check out the website, uh, the show notes there, sundaydive.com. Speaking of dive, let's dive right into it. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. 
All right. Again, that's our gospel for the second Sunday of Lent, Matthew chapter 17, verse one, verses one through nine. This is the story of the transfiguration. Okay. So let's just dive right into the details here. Right off the bat, Matthew gives us a time frame for what's going on here at verse uh, 17. These are easy details for us to gloss over, but we want to pay attention because timing is not only like extra, is not always extraordinary relevant, you know, um, the gospel writers aren't giving us dates. So for them, it's, it's not extraordinarily, extraordinarily relevant, but when they do give us a time frame, it's probably relevant. So six days later, we're told, and again, we can gloss over this so easily. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, what is Matthew referring to here? Uh, what happened six days before? Because it appears that Matthew wants to link what happened six days earlier with what's happening in our gospel, which is the transfiguration. So what happened six days earlier, according to Matthew? What happens in the section prior to this? So Matthew 16 is uh, is the uh, confession of Peter, okay? So we're told that Jesus takes uh, the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, um, which is fascinating in and of itself. I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's not our gospel, but he takes them up to Caesar- Caesarea Philippi, which is way up in the north. It's pagan territory, and it's home to um, uh, a pagan temple, Okay. And there Jesus poses the question to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so they, they give some answers as to who people say that Jesus is. And then Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says uh, to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, um, you are correct. <laughs> but he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father in heaven. And then he entrusts Peter with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And if you remember back to um, our last couple of podcasts, I referenced this, I can't remember which one. Um, what Peter is going to do next though is, uh, is, is interesting. It, it, he, he, he comes, he falls from the limelight very quickly, if you will, because what Jesus does next after this is he starts to foretell his passion and, Peter's reaction to the foretelling of the passion is negative. As you can imagine, Uh, Peter actually says, God forbid, Lord, God forbid that you should suffer. And Jesus responds uh, very harshly. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are uh, talking not as God does, but as man does. Okay. And then Matthew goes on to tell us essentially that what Jesus is going to start doing is preparing the disciples for his passion. Okay. So in this little section between the confession at Caesarea Philippi and our gospel at Matthew 17, we get um, Jesus's famous words. um, If you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow after me. So Jesus is slowly preparing the disciples for his passion. And arguably that's what he's doing here in his transfiguration uh, as well. And and I want to link this in with our own spiritual life because we have to remember that uh, we relive, in our very lives, we relive um, everything that our Lord did and everything that the disciples did. And so the church gives us these readings because 
just as Jesus was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, for his death, for his passion, uh, the church wants to prepare us for that as well, okay? And so we might not think about it, but the, the story of the transfiguration is a great place to go when we are feeling hopeless and desperate in life. Uh, because the transfiguration was the promise to the disciples, specifically uh, Peter, James, and John, right? But it was the promise to the disciples of the glory to come. It was something for them to hold on to during those uh, those three days of horrific persecution where you have to imagine the disciples were just utterly confused. And so God, in his great love and mercy, gave Peter, James, and John this experience for them to hold on to, okay? Uh, so <laughs> let's continue diving into this experience, though. Um, so six days later, so Matthew is linking, he appears to be linking the confession at Caesarea Philippi with the transfiguration, okay? It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Okay, I'm actually going to stop there and kind of peel back another layer for us, just, just right there. Those details are enough to give us um, a, a hidden illusion, but an illusion that probably would have been obvious to Peter, James, and John, and would have been obvious to the readers of the Gospel of Matthew, especially because there's a tradition that Matthew wrote his gospel for the Jews, okay? So what are those details going to conjure to someone? What what kind of uh, hidden reference is in these details? You're reading that Jesus goes up a high mountain. He takes with him three men, Peter, James, and John, and there he's transfigured so that his face shines like the sun. You're a first century Jew familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Your mind immediately goes back to Exodus 24, okay? Exodus 24 is post uh, Exodus from Egypt and the beginnings of the covenant on Mount Sinai. Okay, so the, the Israelites are safe now from the Egyptians, but they're beginning their journey in the wilderness. And the way that God begins this journey for them in the wilderness is to make this covenant with them on Mount Sinai. And he makes this covenant through Moses. And so at Exodus 24, God invites Moses to go up Mount Sinai. All right. And he brings with him three men. Mm-hmm. He brings with him Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Okay. It's fascinating because Aaron, we can see, has a, a kind of correlation to Peter, right? Peter is the primary apostle. He's the one with authority. Just a few verses earlier in Matthew, Jesus has entrusted the keys of the kingdom to Peter. So Peter has authority, okay? Aaron as well has authority as a high priest, okay? And so we see there the correlation between Peter and Aaron. What about James and John and Nadab and Abihu? Well, they're both brothers, both groups of those two. So John, James and John, they're brothers. Generally, people know that. 
Nadab and Abihu were brothers as well. Okay, so fascinating uh, correlations going on here. So God invites Moses up the mountain. He brings with him Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And when he's on the mountain, we're told in Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord comes down and it rests upon the mountain and it rests upon the mountain in a form of a cloud. Okay. Now we haven't actually gotten to that detail in combing through at Matthew 17, but let's jump ahead uh, to verse five. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved with whom with him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay. And so just as in Exodus 24, when Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu go up in the mountain in a cloud, the glory of the Lord in the form of a cloud, um, in Hebrew called the Shekinah, what the rabbis will refer to as the glory cloud, the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord comes down upon the mountain in the form of a cloud. And when God is going to speak from the cloud here in at the transfiguration, he speaks these simple words. This is my son, the beloved with him. I'm well pleased. Listen to him on Mount Sinai. God is going to speak the law. Okay. And actually what he's going to initially do, um, when he calls Moses to enter the cloud is, uh, he's going to give him plans for the tabernacle where his presence will dwell. And this also, links well with this, the transfiguration. We'll come back to the, the tabernacle imagery in a few moments here, but let's keep talking about the parallels between the transfiguration and Exodus 24. So the, the Shekinah, the glory cloud of the Lord comes down. And then we again, uh, have to bring in the six days to, to sort of peel off another layer here, because in Exodus 24, we're told that it's on the seventh day then that God calls Moses to actually enter the cloud. Okay. So six days later, after they've gone up in the mountain, God calls Moses to enter the cloud. Six days later, just at, uh, just as at verse one, where Matthew tells us six days later, uh, Jesus is going to be uh, uh, consumed, if you will, by the cloud as well. He's going to enter the presence of God. Not that he ever left the presence of God, but because he, because he is God. So when I hear, when I mean the presence of God, we're talking about uh, Trinitarian communion. Okay. Our Lord never left Trinitarian communion, but our Lord kind of veils his Trinitarian communion. Why? Because if we saw our Lord in Trinitarian communion, which is beatific vision, uh, we would constantly have the same reaction that Peter, James, and John did, where they're terrified they fall on the ground and Jesus is just glowing. Okay. His, his clothes, we're told at verse two became dazzling white and his face shone like the sun. And so the, the, these three apostles with this exalted, uh, role, this exalted privilege of seeing our Lord get a glimpse of Jesus in his glory, uh, not masked by his humanity. Okay. 
Not that Jesus puts away his humanity for a moment, not at all, but rather he allows his divinity to shine forth through his humanity. What's fascinating, the same exact thing happens to Moses when he goes up the mountain, Mount Sinai, at Exodus 24. We're told, and it doesn't come till later when we get the the recounting of Moses actually coming down the mountain at Exodus 34, uh, 29 and following, but nonetheless, we're told that Moses's face shone, it glowed, okay, uh, to the point where he would actually sometimes wear a veil, probably because his face glowed so much after he spoke to the Lord, after he was in the presence of the Lord, that people could not look upon him, okay? His wife was probably like, I can't sleep. Can you cover your face, please, right? I don't know, but it's just conjecture. Anyway, so Moses would glow. His face would shine just like Jesus did. Uh, What's one difference between the two? Moses's face shone. It glowed, if you will, because he received that light. He received that glory. It's like, it's like the glory of God was so, is so immense that it like, penetrated him so that he himself glowed, right? What's the difference between Moses's glowing? <laughs> I didn't know we were going to talk so much about glowing. Moses is glowing and Jesus is glowing. Jesus, his, his shining like the sun comes from himself, right? Whereas Moses's shining comes from God. Okay. So a couple things here. First of all, um, we are we are seeing the divinity of Christ, and and I I really mean that when I say we, because we as Christians reading this gospel reading, what we are getting, what what God is giving us in the scriptures is a glimpse into Jesus's divinity. But this is what. Peter, James, and John received as well, a glimpse into Jesus's divinity, which would have been so important for them. This is a great privilege. I keep reiterating that, but this is a great privilege for them because Peter, James, and John are seeing things that, that, that people had longed to see, the coming of the Messiah and the presence of God, right? And they have the privilege of seeing this. And so it confirms, we could, we could put ourselves in the, in the footsteps of Peter. It confirms for him what he spoke forth a few verses earlier by the Holy Spirit. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This encounter confirms that for our Lord or for, for Peter. That's very, very powerful. Um, but what else is going on here? Um, if you remember back to a few episodes ago, when we were um, spending uh, several um, segments on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember that I closed off the Sermon of the Mount by bringing in the work of uh, a Jewish scholar and rabbi named Jacob Neusner. And I talked about how for Jacob Neusner, who has this book called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, for Jacob Neusner, when he listens to our Lord speaking on the Sermon of the Mount, speaking the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when he hears, when he puts himself in the place of a first century Jew and hears Jesus's uh, sermon, his preaching, his teaching, 
he finds difficulty with it because he believes that what Jesus is proclaiming, uh, only God can proclaim. Because what Jesus is proclaiming, particularly in the six antitheses, where Jesus alters the law of Moses, only God can do that. Or minimally Moses, right? But Moses was speaking on behalf of God. So for Jacob Neusner, only, only God can alter the law. And if what Jacob Neusner is saying is correct... And, and I think we should take him seriously from a scholarly perspective. And that's not an opinion coming from me. That's an opinion coming, for example, from Pope Benedict XVI, who himself is a great Bible scholar. He said Jacob Neusner's work, especially his work in his book, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, was deeply important for understanding the Jewish context of Jesus's teachings. Okay, so. Pope Benedict XVI has great respect for the sort of spin, if you will, that Jacob Neusner puts on a first century, a quote unquote, first century Jewish reading of the Sermon on the Mount. And so having that respect for that point of view, it's, it's, it would not be uh, out of the, uh, out of the ordinary to say that perhaps Peter, James, and John were also wondering this themselves a little bit, right? Now, they gave up everything and they followed our Lord. So I don't want to paint them as having constant doubt and being at any moment ready to leave our Lord. But nonetheless, they had questions that they wanted Jesus to, to fill in the gaps. Um, and they asked him questions. Sometimes in the Gospels, we get the questions of the apostles that he asked them. And so it's possible that as first century Jews, they heard the Sermon on the Mount in a similar way, but they they did indeed believe, at least Peter, by the help of the Holy Spirit, believed that our Lord was the Christ, right? The son of the living God. But here, when Jesus goes up the mountain, just like at Exodus 24, taking with him three men with him, just at, like Moses at Exodus 24, when the Shekinah, the glory cloud of the Lord, comes down upon the mountain, just as at Exodus 24, and when Jesus his face shines like the sun and his clothes become dazzling white, just as Moses did when he was on Mount Sinai, right? There we see then Jesus as a new Moses. Jesus as a new Moses. Not only that, but at verse three, we actually see Moses appearing with Jesus. And who is the prominent figure in the scene? It's not Moses. Moses, Moses isn't there as the primary figure, Jesus is there as the primary figure. And so Moses shows himself to almost be like at service to our Lord. And we, we know this has to be the case because our Lord is God, right? And so here, not, not only is Jesus a new Moses, uh, but he is higher than Moses, right? And so this would have confirmed for Peter, James, and John that what Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, he had the right to speak. Because not only is he a new Moses, but he is greater than Moses, right? Uh, another place in the gospel, Jesus says, um, something greater than Solomon is here, for example. And you could, you could imagine Jesus saying something similar. Something greater than Moses is here. Uh, we could jump down to verse 5, which I already read for you, but I'll, I'll pull it back in to, to loop it into the theme we're discussing here. 
while he was still speaking, suddenly, and, and who are we talking about there for a second? Uh, Jesus begins to converse, or excuse me, this is when Peter, so Jesus has been conversing with Moses and Elijah. Actually, the gospel of Luke uh, goes into that a little bit more. But then Peter uh, says, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three booths. We're going to come back to that. But uh, I want to give you context for here. So while Peter's still speaking this, suddenly a bright cloud overshadows them. And from the cloud, a voice, this is my son, the beloved with him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. If you're an astute reader of scripture, you would know that we've received this phrase before. Uh, not much earlier, not not much uh, farther away from what we're reading now in scripture. Uh, so at Matthew three seventeen, this is the story of the baptism. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Uh, the heavens are opened. The dove descends upon Jesus and a voice from heaven is heard and it speaks almost these, this exact phrase. The father's voice from heaven says, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. Period. Full stop. And here we get that same phrase. This is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased then we get this clause added onto it. Listen to him. And on the surface, this makes a lot of sense. But if we read this, as many theologians do, in light of the fact that Jesus appears on the mountain as a new Moses. And, and remember here, on at Exodus 24, Moses is called up to the mountain in order to receive the law. Okay. I said he's going to receive the instructions for the tabernacle, but he's also going to receive the law. And so what we have Jesus here doing is not receiving the new law, but rather being presented as himself the new law, which is why, according to many theologians, God the Father takes these you know next three words in order to say, listen to him. And possibly to further confirm for Peter, James, and John that, that, that Jesus is his son. And as his son speaks with complete authority in order to give a new law, but not only that, that, that Jesus himself in his very being is the new law. Okay. This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him listen to him. All right. So that's like one layer that we've peeled off. Let's peel off a new layer. And, uh, by let's, let's start that off by, by jumping again back to verse three, where we're told that Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus here at the, the transfiguration. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, the general answer that's given, which I will not say is incorrect but the general answer that's given is that Moses and Elijah themselves um, represent the uh, the law and the prophets. Okay, so kind of the coming together, the summation of the entire Old Covenant, the entire Old Testament, in a way, the summation of salvation history. And Moses and Elijah appear there um, in service, in a way. I already use this kind of phraseology, but in in service, in a way, to our Lord kind of uh, 
stepping aside, perhaps, to show Peter, James, and John that not only are they as, you know, persons subject to our Lord, but all the the history and the law that they represent, the prophecy that they represent, is also at uh, service to God, right? Something new is being ushered in here, for example. I think that's what many theologians mean when they say Moses and Elijah um, sort of are figures of the law and the prophets. There's another interesting interpretation going on here that I don't want to propose as um, counter to the idea that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. It would certainly be supplementary. So I said at the beginning that Jesus um, arguably uh, invites Peter, James, and John to witness his transfiguration in order to give them strength for his passion. And so we can ask ourselves, is there, some, is there something in here, is there something in the appearance of Moses and Elijah that would have bolstered Peter, James, and John's faith as they perhaps were witnessing the passion, okay? And what has been proposed by some is that Moses and Elijah can be linked by the fact that there's a tradition for both of them that their bodies are in heaven, that their bodies have been assumed into heaven. This is a tradition that is very easy to argue on the part of Elijah. Why? Because it's obvious in in biblical, uh, it's obvious from scripture itself. So 2 Kings 2 verse 11, 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11 tells us outright, that Elijah was assumed into heaven. Elijah didn't actually die. He was assumed into heaven, okay? Moses, it's a little more iffy here. I'm going to be upfront about that. But nevertheless, it's a fascinating tradition. So um, Moses, we're told in scripture, does actually die, okay? Uh, so at uh, Deuteronomy 34, 6, we're told outright Moses dies. But there's a tradition, and it's subtly hinted to in Scripture, and there's an extra biblical tradition that possibly Moses' body, even after his death, was assumed into heaven. And so Moses now is living in heaven with his body, just as Elijah is. So, for example, at Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 9, we get this kind of cryptic phrase, um, where Jude mentions something about St. Michael um, uh, battling or arguing or fighting uh, with Satan over the body of Moses, okay? And um, scholars are not really sure 100% what Jude is referring to here, but they do believe he's referring to likely an apocryphal extra-biblical text called the Assumption of Moses, which from the title of the text you can assume, no pun intended, uh, the the tradition that Moses uh, was taken bodily into heaven after his death, okay? That being said, there's something fascinating here about Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus if one of the main purposes of the transfiguration was to bolster the faith of these three apostles. And so what would their presence, what would the presence of Moses and Elijah uh, point towards for Peter, James, and John? And the argument can be made that it would point towards 
the resurrection of the body, or at least the living on of the body, okay? Precisely because Elijah was assumed body and soul into heaven, not suffering death. Moses suffering death. Nevertheless, his body was not allowed to see decay, okay? And it was assumed into heaven according to that apocryphal but very fascinating tradition. And so what's possible here is that what Jesus, what God is trying to show Peter, James, and John by appearing with Moses and Elijah is that his fate is going to be similar to these two Old Testament figures, that they can hope for the the raising up of Jesus's body, even after his horrific uh, suffering and death on the cross, okay? In other words, there's hope for the resurrection. There's hope for the resurrection. It's fascinating to kind of um, jump between uh, the transfiguration and the passion um, as we keep doing, because it appears that uh, there, there is this connection here. Uh, so for example, let me just do this really quickly. Um, we're at the transfiguration, right? Jesus goes up to a high place and there he is seen with two people and being seen in this high place with two people, he shows forth his identity. Okay. And just a short time after this, according to the gospels, Jesus is again going to go up to a high place. That high place is called Calvary. There on Calvary, he's going to be flanked by two people, the two thieves. He's going to be uh, raised up on the cross, right? And on the cross, he's going to show forth his identity. Now, that identity is not going to become obvious until after the resurrection. But after the resurrection, the identity that Jesus is showing forth becomes obvious. And that identity is Savior. That identity is Redeemer, right? That identity is Messiah. And so Jesus here on the mountain, flanked by Moses and Elijah, showing forth his glory is an image for Peter, James, and John to hold on to when they then, especially John, who's actually at the foot of the cross, sees Jesus once more on the mountain, flanked by two people, but his identity is very much hidden. It's hidden in all this suffering and what appears to be just sheer humanness, right? For the people who are witnessing our Lord's passion, there was nothing divine going on. I mean, we, if you remember to the, the passion narratives, how are people uh, jeering at our Lord? They're saying, you've been walking around telling us you're God, but now you're nailed to a cross and you can't come down. See, you can't be God. Uh, they, they have this misinterpretation about who God is. And so it, in a very real way, Jesus actually really does, really does reveal to us his true identity on the cross to the point that he's not even recognized for who he is because we don't expect him to be the way he is because in many ways we can't imagine a love like the love that he has. We just simply can't imagine that God 
would become man and would die on a cross. You know, that, that God would create matter that can be turned into wood and nails so that one day he could undergo horrific suffering to show us how much we are loved. And so in some ways, even though Peter, James, and John really did see who Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration, I don't want to discount that. They certainly did. They really did. When, when they, and, and specifically here, John, when, when they gazed on Jesus on the cross, they still, they still were seen as much of a revelation. They still were seen who Jesus really is. And this is the privilege of all of us who gaze upon a cross. I have a crucifix right now above my desk where I'm recording. I can gaze on it. And when I gaze on it, I see God for who he really is. Pure love. St. John. God is love, right? And so the connections between the transfiguration and the passion are so beautiful and so profound, uh, which is why I could say at the beginning that the transfiguration, though it's not thought of as scripture to meditate on in times of despair, it really is. It really is a worthwhile piece of scripture to go to, to meditate on. Okay. Let's take off another layer, right? <laughs> One more layer. All right. So in verse four, uh, we get the words of St. Peter. And I consider it um, one of my, uh, I don't know, professional goals. I don't know. Goals. One of my life goals. To uh, whenever I teach on scripture to kind of redeem the words of St. Peter, because I get that people want to make St. Peter really human. And he was, he was wonderfully human. I love St. Peter. However, um, in the hopes of humanizing St. Peter, I think for the purpose of, you know, making him um, somebody relatable for the purpose of spurring us on to holiness uh, we sometimes go to the extreme, teachers, pastors, preachers, I think sometimes go to the extreme and just make Peter sound like an idiot. So some of us in homilies this weekend, don't go criticize your priest. Most definitely do not tell him you are listening to this podcast called Sunday Dive that totally contradicts what the priest says. Please don't do that. I work at a church. I hear all the, the things that my poor pastor has to listen to. Only give them love and affection, okay? Um, but some of you may hear this weekend, uh, uh, Peter might get a, ra a bad rap this weekend, all right? Because at verse four, uh, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're seeing Jesus. He's transfigured before them. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes are dazzling white. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear and they start conversing, the three of them. At verse four, it tells us, then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, 
I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And people be like, oh, Peter, just saying funny stuff again. Almost like, almost like he's interrupting like an, uh, like an ecstatic moment, like a moment when like Peter, James and John are in ecstasy, or maybe just James and John are in ecstasy and Peter just like ruins it, you know, something like that. The picture is sometimes painted like that, but if you dive deeper into the context that might be prompting Peter's exclamation, and many theologians and Bible scholars have done this, what you actually find is that uh, Peter actually really seems to be tracking with what's going on here. So what do I mean when I say that? Well, he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings, okay? And that, that seems to be the key to really understanding what Peter is getting at here. So the Greek for dwellings is skene, it means booths. And this is not a word that occurs commonly, and in some ways it's a technical liturgical word. And so for many theologians and Bible scholars reading Matthew 17 verse 4, they hear skene in the Greek and they immediately go they immediately go to a uh, a liturgical feast in Judaism called the feast of tabernacles, okay? Because skene is the Greek word for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, Skene, dwellings, okay? Lord, it is good for us to be here. I, if you wish, I will make three Skene, booths, dwellings. And some scholars have even put forth the idea that the time at which the transfiguration is taking place uh, is possibly the time during which the Feast of Tabernacles would be taking place, Okay. And if that's the case, there's some really fascinating uh, things going on here. So, for example, if we bring in the six days that uh, Matthew, the time frame that Matthew uses to introduce this, some scholars have put forth, have proposed that Matthew might be subtly linking the Feast of Tabernacles and the Transfiguration with Peter's confession and the Feast of Yom Kippur, okay? So Yom Kippur and the Feast of Tabernacles were uh, only five days apart. So if you had Yom Kippur, six days later, you would get the Feast of Tabernacles. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Um, and interestingly enough, it's the only day out of the year in which the divine name was actually spoken. So if you're somewhat familiar with Judaism, you may know that the divine name the name actually given by uh, God to Moses, Yahweh, is too sacred to be uttered by the Jews, okay? I think this is a wonderful practice. They have such respect for the name of God, they won't utter his name. But there was one day out of the year, every year, when the name of our Lord, the name of God was actually spoken. And so I, I should note here quickly that instead of saying Yahweh, uh, the Jewish people, for example, reading the scriptures, every time they saw the, the divine name Yahweh, they would instead say Adonai, Lord, okay? Except on Yom Kippur, when the high priest would speak 
forth the divine name. And when he spoke forth the divine name, everyone would fall on their faces, okay? So on Yom Kippur, at the temple, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come out, all the people would be gathered, and he would he would say God's name. He would say Yahweh, and he would bless them in God's name. Uh, this is kind of tangential, but a little bit interesting, because if the Transfiguration is linked with the Feast of Tabernacles, and then Peter's confession is linked with Yom Kippur, Peter's confession... Um, is very much uh, typified uh, by the uttering of the divine name because Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Jesus or Peter makes this uh, profound confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so he speaks forth uh, Jesus's name. He speaks forth his identity. Okay. Side note there, but let's, let's come back focusing then. So if, if, if Peter's confession is linked with Yom Kippur, six days later on the liturgical Jewish calendar, you'd have the Feast of Tabernacles. And then here we have the Transfiguration. Okay, so what do we know about the Feast of Tabernacles? What well, in general, Jewish feasts have sort of like three meanings. Okay, so frequently Jewish feasts have an agricultural dimension to them. Um, and then in addition to the agricultural dimension, they have the more um, religious or liturgical connotation. And so each feast tends to be a remembering of God's uh, works, specifically his salvation. Okay. And then all Jewish feasts have um, like an eschatological dimension to them in which they look forward to the hope of final fulfillment or final redemption or final salvation. Okay. Um, so if the feast is celebrating like the initial salvation, like how Passover celebrated uh, the initial um, salvation from the Egyptians um, in the Exodus, right? The new Passover would uh, would initiate a new Exodus and a final salvation um, from from all evil, right? Okay, hint hint the Eucharist, um, but I can't get on a tangent. So the Jewish feasts have these three facets to them. So let's look at the, the Feast of Tabernacles through these three facets. So the Feast of Tabernacles um, occurs in the fall, generally end of September, early October, okay? And it was the agri it was an agricultural feast or the, the agricultural aspect of the feast celebrated the final ingathering of all the crops, okay? So there were earlier feasts on the Jewish liturgical calendar that would celebrate the bringing in of some of the early crops. So for example, like the grain crop um, would be, the, the, the ingathering of the grain crop would have been celebrated earlier in the year, the grain harvest. Um, I'm in Iowa, and I spent a lot of time uh, commuting, so I can see how this plays out for me here, because even though the corn is not harvested until like uh, October, well, that's because we let the corn die. But the uh, sweet corn that we eat off the cob, that's going to be harvested earlier because it's ready earlier. But on the apple orchard that I work on, a lot of the harvest, the final bringing in of the harvest is, is starting to take place uh, end of September, early October, okay? That's like the high point for like orchard season, pumpkin season, right? And so, you know, if you're in the Midwest agricultural culture, you can really see the time frame here. And even across the world, um, Starbucks really uh, uh, triggers for us uh, our own sort of Americana uh, agricultural feast, right? 
So I used to live in California. Maybe the weather wouldn't tell me that it was fall, but Starbucks would because the pumpkin spice latte had come out, right? Okay. Anyways, end of September, early October, celebrating the 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 final ingathering of um, of the harvest. Okay, coming in. That's the agricultural aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles. How does that relate to tabernacles? Because tabernacles here can be translated booths, uh, can be translated dwellings, can be translated tents. It was not uncommon for the Jewish people, the Israelite people, to spend those uh, those final fall weeks of the farm season um, 24 hours a day out in the fields in order to get the work done. And they would dwell in tents during that time. Okay. So that's the connection, uh, with tabernacles, the people dwelling in the tents to, to work as hard as they can to bring in the harvest. Now, what is tabernacles, uh, remembering about God's salvation? Okay. Well, tabernacles is remembering, uh, if, if, we're, if we're linking it to that second facet of feasts, how God has how God has worked in the life of his people, um, how he has saved them. Tabernacles is a celebration of the presence of God. That's like the, the simplest way I can put it. Because tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates the tabernacle where uh, the, the moving temple where God's presence dwelled during the 40 years when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, okay? And that association is so linked with the Feast of Tabernacles that interestingly enough, when Solomon builds the temple, which is the permanent tabernacle on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, he chooses to dedicate the temple. He actually, he finishes the temple and from from what I remember, he has he waits quite a long time to to dedicate the temple because he wants to dedicate it during the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Because the Feast of Tabernacles is so associated with the tabernacle and the presence of God among his people, okay? I'm just going to interject real real quick here because I, I launched this discussion, this extra layer, right? Talking about the Greek word skene that Peter uses here that clues us into how he might be tracking with our Lord, And I've been talking about how the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating the presence of God who tabernacled among his people. St. John begins his gospel with a really famous saying. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you know the Greek word that he actually uses there? He says, the word became flesh and skenade among us. He tabernacled among us, okay? And how does he tabernacle among us? By taking on flesh. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Oh man, there's so much good stuff going on here. All right, so Solomon, the the, the Feast of Tabernacles is so associated with the, the tabernacle and God's presence dwelling among his people that Solomon waits to dedicate the temple until the Feast of Tabernacles. And not only that, but then when the second temple is dedicated after the Babylonian exile... Ezra and Nehemiah dedicate the second temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? So for the Jewish people, the Feast of Tabernacles reminds them of God's presence dwelling among them in the tabernacle while they wandered in the wilderness, but it's also very much linked to um, the temple, okay? 
and the idea of God's presence um, dwelling among the people. Now, so we talked about the agricultural aspect, um, the kind of looking back of the feast. So it looks back and remember the Feast of Tabernacles looks back and remembers the tabernacle as well as the temple. Okay. But now uh, we want to explore how the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward. What is the eschatological meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, for the rabbis, for the Jewish people, there was an idea that in the new age and the new exodus, the people would once more dwell in booths. Okay. They would once more dwell in booths. Cause uh, here's another aspect of it that there's so many aspects that I didn't really throw this one in. Okay. So the people would dwell in, they would, they would skene, they would tabernacle out in the fields during the, the harvest time. And God himself tabernacled among the people during the wandering and continued to tabernacle among them in the temple. But the Jewish people themselves, the Israelites, tabernacled during the 40 uh, years of wandering in the desert. And so what came after the Exodus was skene, was, was, was the dwelling in tents, in booths, okay? And so there's this idea that in the eschatological age, the age to come, the Messianic age, when the new Exodus is initiated there will be a new tabernacling, a new skene. The people will once more dwell in tabernacles, right? And so when Peter, on the mountain of the transfiguration, sees Jesus transfigured before him, his face shining like the sun, his clothes dazzling white, and then Moses and Elijah appearing next to him and speaking to him. Peter appears by his comment, appears to understand that what Jesus is doing here is initiating the new Exodus. And what's fascinating, I don't always like to bring in other aspects of the gospels because it can be too easy to like, not just focus on our gospel, but in Luke's account of the transfiguration, he tells us what Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about. And it says that um, the the English word uh, that's usually used is it says that they're talking about his departure, but the Greek word is exodus. They're talking about his exodus, it, which we understand that to mean his departure, his death. Okay. But his death literally initiates a new exodus. And by initiating a new exodus, we have a new tabernacles. And so at the transfiguration, seeing Jesus in his glory, Peter is tracking with our Lord and he understands this is the eschatological age. And it's, it's fascinating because Peter, not just Peter, Peter, James, John, we're told at verse six, when they heard this. So would they see Jesus? He's transfigured. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes are dazzling white. Moses and Elijah appears in them. Then the, the Shekinah, the glory cloud comes down, overshadows them. And the voice of the father speaks. And at verse six, it says the disciples, when they heard this, they fell on the ground and were overcome by fear. Okay. You can imagine why would they, they would be overcome by fear. And why they would maybe hide themselves. I've always wondered reading this, if there's, there's a certain element of like a mystical encounter going on as well. 
perhaps if you're familiar with the charismatic movement, you know, such a thing, uh, called resting in the spirit. When this, the spirit comes upon you and you literally slowly kind of fall back onto the ground and you're having like this, this mystical experience of God's presence, that would make total sense if it's true that what Peter and James and John are being given here is a glimpse of the beatific vision. And arguably theologians say that is exactly what's going on here. And so Peter was likely in, in a sort of ecstasy. Who wouldn't be seeing Jesus for who he really is, which is what it means to, to see the beatific vision, to see God for who he really is. And so Peter is tracking here because he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It is good for us to, I mean, this is what Peter is made for, the beatific vision. It's good for us to be here. And, but Peter, in a way, almost isn't, isn't just thinking of himself here. He's thinking of the, the eschatological ramifications of this because he uses this word, skene. Let us make three skene. Let us make three booths, one here, one, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because I understand, Lord, that you are, you are instituting the new kingdom. You are instituting the new exodus. You are instituting the new age. And I have just received a glimpse of it by seeing you for who you really are, transfigured. But if we keep reading, we hear at verse 7 that Jesus came and touched them. He said, get up and don't be afraid. When they looked up, it tells us that uh, Moses and Elijah had gone. We, so we no longer have this kind of theophany. I mean, we have a theophany because Jesus is there, but um, not in the same way, right? Jesus's humanity is once more kind of masking at his own will, but nevertheless sort of masking his divinity. And they just see him. And Jesus tells them, it says at verse nine, as they're coming down the mountain, he orders them, tell no one about the vision until the son of man has been raised from the dead. Why? Because even though Peter, James, and John were given the privilege of a glimpse into the, the age of the new Exodus and the beatific vision, which is our our whole purpose, our whole end, that has not fully been initiated yet. Why? Because that will be initiated in our Lord's passion. But the whole purpose of giving Peter and James and John this glimpse is to allow them to keep faith through the passion and to help uh, confirm the faith of the other apostles during the passion and to hope in the resurrection because it's in the passion, death and resurrection of our Lord that the new Exodus will take place. And once more, we will dwell in booths in the eschatological age to come where all of us, not just Peter, James, and John will gaze on our Lord and see him for who he is, but we can't get there except through our Lord's cross. And so it's fascinating because the next time we're going to see Peter, James, and John singled out is at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus begins his own passion. We pray, Lord, as we continue through our Lent, that you would give us the strength to see the merit in suffering so that we can see the glory of your resurrection and our own glory that is promised to us through the church, through grace, and through the sacraments. Thanks so much for listening.
I've never done this before, but I just can't resist um, because I forgot to mention. Uh, so a little bonus here. Okay, so tabernacles, um, the Feast of Tabernacles associated with the, the original tabernacle where God's presence dwelt um, while the Israelites wandered for 40 years, um, associated with the the Solomon's temple, right? Because it was dedicated during the Feast of Tabernacles uh, with the second temple, because also dedicated during the Feast of Tabernacles. And I keep saying the transfiguration linked towards Jesus's passion. Jesus himself, Jesus himself is going to link his passion with the temple. What do I mean here? What am I referring to? Let's go to John chapter two. There Jesus, uh, he drives out the money changers in the temple. All right. And then uh, the, 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 the Jewish people say, why are you doing this? What sign do you have to show us for doing this? So uh, John chapter two, verse 19, Jesus answers them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. And at verse 21, he tells us, but he spoke, John tells us, but he spoke of the temple of his body. Okay. So just as at the tabernacle in the, the wandering in the wilderness, the Shekinah, the glory cloud came down upon the tabernacle to show that God's presence was dwelling among the people at the transfiguration. The Shekinah comes down upon Jesus because in Jesus, uh, God's presence dwells once more with the people. And it's at the passion that this new temple which is Jesus's body is going to be raised up once and for all. Ah, such good stuff. Okay. Thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm done for real now. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.